All right, let's talk about Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Uh, this is our entry into 20th century literature. It's our first uh, work from the 20th century. And as we'll see, it has some thematic concerns that will carry over into a lot of 20th century literature. Uh, the story is fairly uh, closely based on the experience that Joseph Conrad himself had in the Congo. And it, it paints and shows some of the, the horrifying details of the colonialism that was being practiced there at that time. And that's certainly an important part of the book. But I also think it, it, you can get sidetracked by that, that uh, uh, in, in a way, talking about Heart of Darkness and only talking about the colonialism would be like talking about Lord of the Flies and saying, well, what can that tell us about how to survive on a desert island? Uh, you're kind of missing the larger thematic point of what's going on. And here, uh, I think the title tells you this is about about darkness, about evil, uh, about, um, well, we'll see some of the things that it's about. Now we start, I want you to notice who the narrator is of this story. Um, there's actually kind of a narrative within a narrative, because it starts out, we have an anonymous narrator, he's never named, we don't know who he is, and he is on a ship on the Thames River, about uh, uh, you know 25 miles uh, downriver from uh, London, and they are waiting for the tide to turn so that they can uh, uh, move out to sea. And one of his friends, most of them just have titles. There's the director of companies, the lawyer, the accountant. Uh, but one of them is Marlowe. And he's going to be our uh, the main narrator of the story. But there's this frame narrative around it. There's this guy who's telling us the story of Marlowe, telling us the story of his time in the Congo. And I think that's very significant. You know, in... Uh, Pride and Prejudice, we had a third-person omniscient narrator. Uh, Jane Austen is telling that story from a kind of a God's-eye point of view. Now, she will limit things to particular characters uh, for the needs of the story, but she can kind of, of objectively see everything that's happening. That's not the case here. Uh, th this is a filtered narrative. We get it filtered through two different narrators, and, and as we'll see, that's... Um, uh, affects the uh, the way the story is told affects very much what it's trying to tell us. Now you'll see at the top of 1955 we have the first lines that Marlowe himself says. Uh, they're sitting there. It's it's night is falling. The light is going out again. That's thematically very relevant here. And Marlowe says, "And this also," said Marlowe suddenly, "has been one of the dark places of the earth." So he's talking about England. Now, England at this time, uh, there was a, a cliche at the time that the sun never sets on the British Empire. It was kind of, the, it was the most powerful nation on earth. Uh, it had an empire that literally spanned the globe. But he's saying this also had been a dark place. And he'll go on and he'll talk about, you know, when the Romans came here, it was a primitive, barbaric place that they had to civilize. And, and that obviously is relevant to his own story. But notice in the middle of 1955, our narrator tells us some things about Marlowe. He is the only, all of these people were friends, apparently, as sailors. They, as he says, followed the sea. Uh, and 
uh, he says that Marlowe did not represent his class. He wasn't a typical sailor. He says, most seamen lead, if one may say, uh, if one may so express it, a sedentary life. Their minds are of the stay-at-home order, and their home is always with them, the ship, and so is their country, the sea. So he says, you know, the sailors are going around all the time, but mentally they're, uh, they're very provincial. They're very stay-at-home. They're very sedentary. Um, and he says, but Marlowe is different. And he further says that the yarns of seamen have a direct simplicity, the whole meaning of which lies within the shell of a cracked nut. But Marlowe was not typical, if his propensity to spin yarns be accepted, and to that and to him, the meaning of an episode was not inside like a kernel, but outside, enveloping the tale which brought it out only as a glow brings out a haze, in the likeness of one of those misty halos that sometimes are made visible by the spectral illumination of moonshine. All right, now that's a very uh, intense image here. But notice what he's saying. You know, most these kind of provincial seamen, they would tell a story, and it's direct, and it's simple, and you can see, you know, the meaning. There might be a, a, you know, a a quote-unquote hidden meaning, but it's like it's very easy to find. It's like, you know, you crack open the nut, and there is what's inside of it. Um, He says, Marlowe's stories aren't like that. He says it's like a, a, the way a glow brings out a haze, a kind of a misty halo. So he's telling us that Marlowe doesn't have these simple, direct, clear stories. They're all kind of vague and hazy and impressionistic, and, and you kind of in, get an indirect meaning. Now, I think Conrad is telling us very explicitly how to read this story, or what kind of story it's going to be. Don't expect a simple, clear moral. Uh, this is going to be a complicated story, and the meaning of it might be a little bit hazy. And Marlowe goes on, expanding on his comment about this being one of the, it was once one of the dark places of the world, talk, talking about the Romans first coming to England, and uh, that the, you know, the darkness was here just yesterday. He says, imagine the feelings of that commander who would come here. Uh, and what it would be like. And he says at the top of 1956, they were men enough to face the darkness. And perhaps he was cheered by keeping his eye on a chance of promotion to the fleet at Ravenna by and by, if he had a good friend in Rome and survived the awful climate. Now, this is the kind of thing he'll talk about in the colonialism. You know, they're kind of, they, they, they're, they're thinking about promotion. Uh, they're not thinking about these grand civilizational terms. Um, he says here, the utter savagery had closed round him. You know, there's no in- initiation either, in, either into such mysteries. He has to live in the midst of the incomprehensible, which is also detestable. And it has a fascination, too, that goes to work upon him. The fascination of the abomination, you know. Imagine the growing regrets, the longing to escape, the powerless disgust, the surrender, the hate. Now, all these things he's saying to imagine, I think, apply very much to himself and his experience in the Congo. Uh, and, and it is, there's, it's incomprehensible and detestable. It's fascinating, and it's an abomination. 
And here we get the sense of this kind of this this hazy, fuzzy meaning he's talking about. It's not it, it's not uh, just abominable. It's also fascinating. Um, it's uh, that incomprehension makes you curious, but it's also repulses you. It's also detestable. And he tells us pretty clearly on 1956 how he feels about colonialism. He says the conquest of the earth, which mostly means the taking it away from those who have different, a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves, is not a pretty thing when you look at it into, look at, into it too much. What redeems it is the idea only, an idea at the back of it, not a sentimental pretense, but an idea and an unselfish belief in the idea, something you can set up and bow down before and offer a sacrifice to. Now he's saying that, now I don't think that Marlowe is saying he believes that that idea is a good thing. Look at the way he talks about it. It's something you bow down before and offer sacrifices to, like some you know primitive uh, tribe. Saying, but that's how you justify it, that there's this the ugly reality you forget and you just think of the, the ideals. And that will um, uh, justify all of the horrible things that you do. And this has all been a wind-up for him to start telling his story about his experience in the Congo. And as the narrator says, they were about to hear uh, one of Marlowe's inconclusive experiences. There again, this is not a simple, straightforward story. It's an inconclusive experience. Um, and it, it, Marlowe himself says that it was not very clear, and yet it seemed to throw a kind of light. Again, that, that's a very qualified... Not clear, but a, it seemed to throw a kind of light. Okay, obviously we're not going to get uh, simple good and bad answers here. And then he tells us about you know his, his kind of fascination with Africa. It was originally kind of a blank space on the map, uh, but now it's been filled in. And he sees, he's looking for work, and he sees the, the map of the Congo, and that, uh, and he describes the, uh, the river as resembling an immense snake uncoiled. It fascinated me as a snake would a bird, a silly little bird. He says, the snake had charmed me. So the, the Congo is like this snake that's almost hypnotized a bird that it's going to eat. And that suggests that Marlowe is a victim here. He has been in, 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 taken in by this fascination and is going to pay for it. And I think the story kind of bears that out. Uh, now, the way that he gets his uh, uh, job is it turns out that somebody else had died. This is 1958. Says so one of their captains had been killed in a scuffle with the natives, um, and it says uh, I, I heard the original quarrel arose from a misunderstanding about some hens. Yes, two black hens. Freslevin, that was the fellow's name, a Dane, thought himself wronged somehow in the bargain, so he went ashore and started to hammer the chief of the village with a stick. Oh, it didn't surprise me in the least to hear this, and at the same time, he told uh, he uh, to be told that Frez, uh, Freslevin was the gentlest, quietest creature that had ever walked on two legs. No doubt he was, but he had been a, coup, uh, a couple of years already out there, engaged in the noble cause, you know, and he probably felt the need of uh, at last of asserting his self-respect in some way. 
So look at you know, several details of this story. First of all, this is a guy who you hear is a gentle, kind man who was beating a man to death over two black hens. Uh, and yet Marlowe says, yeah, after being in the Congo, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, so we're already, before we even get there, we're seeing the idea that this is a place that changes people, uh, that makes them do things that they wouldn't normally do. Also, one of the uh, features of this narrative is that it slips back and forwards in time. And it's important to remember that Marlowe is telling this story uh, not in the moment that it happened, but years later reflecting back on it. So the whole story is given a kind of a double vision. It's already a double vision because it's it, it's encased in two narrators. We've got the main narrator retelling the story that Marlowe, the narrator, is telling him. And we've also got the uh, a temporal duality. We've got Marlowe in the present looking at himself back in the past. And oftentimes we'll see him commenting and maybe understanding things better now than he did in the moment. Uh, and that's another way that this, this story is kind of hazy and ambiguous and complex and not a kind of a simple, straightforward nut to crack. Now notice at the bottom of 1958 when he describes how he when he signed up for the job, he goes across the channel. He's going to Europe, uh, probably it's uh, in Brussels. Um, and he says, I arrived in a city that always makes me think of a whited sepulcher. Prejudice, no doubt. I had no difficulty in finding the company's office. It was the biggest thing in the town, and everybody I met was full of it. They were uh, going to run an overseas empire and make no end of coin by trade. Now, he says that this place is like a whited sepulcher. That's a biblical allusion. Uh, Jesus says that the Pharisees are like whited sepulchers. That is, they're tombs that are whitewashed on the outside. They look beautiful and sparkling and clean outside, but inside it's moldy, rotting corpses. And so the first image of this, uh, this world that he's going into is one of hypocrisy. It looks like something different on the outside than it is on the inside. And when he gets into the, the, the waiting room, there are two women, one fat and the other slim, sat on, straw on straw-bottom chairs, knitting black wool. Now, that's another very resonant mythical image. It's like the fates, you know, weaving the, your, your destiny. Um, notice that also there are all of these images of light and dark, of black and white, a whited sepulcher, black, two women uh, knitting black wool, two black hens. Um, that's all very, very deliberate. He's creating these dichotomies of black and white, good and evil, light and dark, and as the story goes on, he'll show how uh, that those aren't simple, black and white. So it's very confusing. It's not. It's a morally ambiguous world, not one where things are very clear. And he says in the middle of 1959, when he had signed his, his contract, that I began to feel slightly uneasy. You know, I'm not used to such ceremonies, and there was something ominous in the atmosphere. It was just as, as though... I had been uh, let into some conspiracy. I don't know, something not quite right. Uh, so again, this sense of uneasiness, and that sense of uneasiness comes up again and again and again in Heart of Darkness. It's kind of, in some ways, the central emotion of the narrator and of the story in general. 
he has the, the incident with the doctor who wants to measure his, his cranium. Um, and uh, he says, well, do you measure the craniums when they come back? He says, oh, I never see them. Um, so wait, why is he doing that? And this is the first, there are a lot of, we'll see a lot of this, of this kind of absurdist things that happen. There, there seems to be no reason why the doctor would do this. There's no uh, payoff for it in the, in the end. Now, before he, he finally leaves, he talks with his aunt, who is the one who actually got him the position. And she says, at the bottom of 1960, um, or he, he says her attitude about it, uh, that uh, she thought of him, I was uh, one of the workers, with a capital, you know, something like an emissary of light, something like a lower sort of apostle. There had been a lot of such rot let loose in print and talk just about the time, and the excellent woman, living right in the uh, rush of all the humbug, got carried off her feet. She talked about weaning those ignorant millions from their horrid ways, till, upon my word, she made me quite uncomfortable. I ventured to hint that the company was run for profit. Uh, now here, again, we get this conflict of values. Uh, and he said before that what makes this ho these horrible things they do in the colonies bearable is the idea. There's an ideal. And here the ant is expressing that ideal. Uh, we're weaning the ignorant millions from their horrid ways. Okay, that's the very kind of condescending uh, justification for the colonialism. But immediately, Marlowe suggests, you know, maybe... They're doing it not so much to uh, uh, bring civilization and be an emissary and an apostle of light, but because they want to make money. That, you know, it may be a much more mundane reason for doing all of this. And he says as he leaves that I felt as though instead of going to the center of a continent, I were about to set off for the center of the earth. And again, I think that's very significant. That's, I mean, Conrad is telling us this isn't just about a physical location he's going to. This is in some way the heart or the center of the earth, of human existence. Of he, He's saying something more than about the specific circumstances that Marlowe is living through and something wider and something more disturbing maybe about the human condition itself. Now at the bottom of 1961, we see his first encounter with a description of Africans. He's a, he calls black fellows. He said, you could see from afar the white of their eyeballs glistening. Again, that, those contrasts of black and white. They shouted, sang. Their bodies streamed with perspiration. They had faces like grotesque masks, these chaps. But they had bone, muscle, a wild vitality, an intense energy of movement that was as natural and true as the surf along their coast. They wanted no excuse for being there. They were a great comf comfort to look at. For a time, I would feel I belonged still to a world of straightforward facts, but that the feeling would not last long. All right, so a couple of things to notice here in this description. Uh, I mean, in, in one way, you can see it as a very kind of condescending, even racist depiction of the natives, you know, with gr their grotesque masks. Um, he's looking down at them. But he also sees something really admirable in them. As he says they wanted no excuse for being there. Uh, now, that makes them very unlike the white Europeans who 
have to have an excuse to be there. So this is the natural place for these people. It's not natural for us to be here. It's natural for them to be here. And he says that there is something comforting about looking at them. Uh, they're, they're in the world of straightforward facts, but that's not going to last long because that world has always already been tainted and corrupted by the people who are colonizing it. And he immediately gives an example of how that sense of straightforward facts and a, a sensible universe was taken away from him right afterwards. He says, Once I remember, we came upon a man of war anchored off the coast. There wasn't even a shed there, and she was shelling the bush. It appears the French had one of their wars going on thereabouts. Her ensign dropped limp like a rag. The muzzles of the long six-inch gu six guns stuck out all over the, over the low hull. The, the greasy, slimy swell swung her up lazily and let her down, swaying her thin masts. In the empty immensity of earth and sky and water, there she was, there she was incomprehensible, firing into a continent. Pop would go one of the six-inch guns, a small flame would dart and vanish, a little white snake smoke would disappear, a tiny projectile would give a feeble screech, and nothing happened. Nothing could happen. There was a touch of insanity in the proceeding, a sense of lugubrious drollery in the sight, and it was not dissipated by somebody on board assuring me earnestly that there was a camp of natives. He called them enemies, hidden out of sight somewhere. So here's the, the, the first kind of intrusion of this surreal, incomprehensible world. Here's this man of war firing cannons into the jungle, and it doesn't seem to have any effect. Nothing happens. He says it's like they're firing on a continent, one tiny little ship trying to fight a continent. Uh, and, you know, they say, oh, no, there's really... there." And he says they're, they're fighting their enemies. R really? Uh, there's nobody there. Uh, and this sense of absurdity comes up again and again. The, the fact, the idea that this world is incomprehensible, that the, the, the Europeans are doing things here that just don't make any sense, that seem uh, absurd. Uh, and it's interesting, in, you know, the, the sense of incongruity here, uh, Wilde, Oscar Wilde uses incongruity and the importance of being earnest to make sly, witty social commentary. But the kind of incongruities that Joseph Conrad has are, uh, are much darker. Uh, they, they reveal a world that doesn't make rational sense and that we can't understand in any kind of rational way. Now, when he gets to his own station, this is 1963, uh, he says there were, uh, they were building a railway. The cliff was not in the way of anything, but this objectless blasting was all the work going on. So here they're, they're kind of blowing up. They're using dynamite, blowing, constructing a railway. Uh, the cliff's not really in, in the way, but they're blowing that up. It's, it's senseless in exactly the same way that the French ship firing on the continent was. Uh, all of this activity, but for no, uh, no apparent purpose. It's all just terrible. It's all kind of uh, nonsensical. And he sees the uh, the black natives enslaved. He sees six black men uh, chained together. And on the next page, on 1964, in what he later calls the Grove of Death, 
he sees the the the, the sick and wounded black men who have been slaves and have been forced to work there slowly dying and he he tries to console them um he says he tries to offer one of them uh one of my good uh, swedes ship biscuits this is near the bottom of 1964 i had it in my pocket the fingers closed slowly on it and held it there was no other movement and no other glance so the man the starving dying man takes the food but he's literally too tired to eat it he had tried a bit of the uh, he had tied a bit of white worsted around his neck why where did he get it was it a badge an ornament a charm a propitiatory act was there any idea at all connected with it it looked startling around his black neck this bit of white thread from beyond the seas so here again these he sees so many of these details that make no sense to him he doesn't understand what they're they're doing they're making a railway but blowing up parts of the land that they don't need to do to make the railway here's this dying black man with a white piece of cloth around his neck and he doesn't he says, why is it there what's going on uh, the, the world constantly makes no sense to him uh, you know, the next thing he sees is uh, on the top of uh, 1965 is a white man in such an unexpected elegance of get-up that in the first moment I took him for a sort of vision. So here's a man who is, is immaculately dressed. Uh, it turns out he is the company's chief accountant. Uh, you know, he, he kept up his appearances. And he says, well, you know, that, that's some backbone, able to keep up appearances here. But he says everything else in the station was in a muddle. Um, and it's this... Um, uh, company's chief accountant that first mentions the uh, Mr. Kurtz. He says, in the interior, you will no doubt meet, meet Mr. Kurtz. Um, and he's, the accountant likes him because Kurtz gets a lot of ivory. Uh, I mean, and here they are here to make money. He's delivering the most ivory from inside the, the, uh, in the interior of the country. So he's an admirable person. And uh, he thinks, you know, he will be somebody in the administration before long. Um, so this is his introduction to the, the, the first con. This is the, the outer station. This is the first station he comes to. Now, he, eventually he has to get to the, the central station. Uh, and it's from here that he's supposed to pilot his steamboat on down the river. But, of course, there's a complication because his steamer was at the bottom of the river. Um, again, this kind of absurdity. Uh, this is a, near the bottom of 1967. He says, I did not see the real significance of that wreck, the, the wreck of his steamer, at once. I fancy I see it now, but I am not sure, not at all. So he had no idea. He didn't attach any significance to it. He thinks there might be a significance to it now. Notice he doesn't tell us what that significance is. Uh, now, it might be that somebody was try had sabotaged it so he couldn't come into the interior. It might be something uh, as if fate were trying to keep him away from there. Uh, he doesn't say. Uh, again, this is, kind of, this is the kind of nebulous, ambiguous meanings that we get in this story. Uh, certainly, the affair was too stupid, when I think of it, to be altogether natural. Still, but at the moment, it presented itself simply as a confounded nuisance. The steamer was sunk. 
Um, so he's, it's interesting. He says, I think I know what it means, and it couldn't have been natural still. Maybe it was natural. This is exactly the kind of inconclusive story that the, the whole of Heart of Darkness is. Uh, but he meets with the, the manager who's going to tell him you know, what, what he needs to do and where he needs to go. And look at how he describes the manager at, on top of 1968. He was a common trader from his youth up employed in these parts, nothing more. He was obeyed, yet he inspired neither love nor fear nor even respect. He inspired uneasiness. That was it, uneasiness. Uh, not a definite mistrust, just uneasiness, nothing more. Now look at the way that he's describing it. That's it. Uh, it's like he's discovering this as he's saying it. Uh, so, again, this is part of the way of kind of groping towards an understanding of things. This is not a narrator who has settled and understood everything is now going to explain it to us. He's somebody who's working through it and trying to understand it along with us. He says, uh, uneasiness, not a definite mistrust, just uneasiness, nothing more. You have no idea how effective such a, a faculty can be. He had no genius for organizing, for initiative, or for order even. That was evident in such things as the deplorable state of the station. He had no learning and no intelligence. His position had come to him, why? Perhaps because he was never ill. He had served three terms of, of uh, three years out there because triumphant health in the general route of constitution is a, a kind of power in itself. So he says, you know, mainly the reason that he was so successful is that he didn't get sick. Uh, again, this is a kind of crazy thing. And again, notice the idea of the uneasiness. He, he doesn't inspire people. He doesn't make them fear him. He doesn't make them love him. He just makes them uneasy. He makes everything unsettled and uneasy. And that itself is very powerful. And his health is Im immediately contrasted with a report about Kurtz, who it was believed was ill. Um, and the manager says, well, it'll probably take you three months to, to get out there because you'll have to repair your, uh, you, you have to drag the, get the steamer uh, out of the water and repair it. And that's going to take a long, long time. So he thought he was just going to get in the ship and go on. But no, it's going to take him, a, he's going to be there for a long, long time. He gets stuck there. He gets mired there. Uh, he, he can't get out as easily as he thought he could. Again, that's very symbolic. Look on uh, 1969. Uh, he says, I asked myself sometimes what it all meant, all this activity at the station. They wandered here and there with their absurd long sta staves in their hands like a lot of faithless pilgrims bewitched inside a rotten fence. The word ivory rang in the air, was whispered, was sighed, but you would think they were praying to it. A taint of imbecile rapacity blew through it all like a whiff from some corpse. By Jove, I've never seen anything so unreal in my life. And outside, the silent wilderness surrounding, surrounding this cleared speck on the earth struck me as something of great, something great and invincible, like evil or truth, waiting patiently for the passing away of this fantastic invasion. So here again, it's like the, the cannons firing on the continent. Here's this, uh, this uh, fantastic invasion, this imbecile rapacity. And there's outside this great, invincible, huge, incomprehensible world, like evil or truth. That's a very interesting choice. Is it evil 
or is it just true? Is that what the, what what is this uh, continent that they're pretending to conquer but seem completely unable to in some ways? Now he's already been mentioned several times, uh, Mr. Kurtz, and I want to look at the bottom of 1970 where we see this painting that Kurtz made, uh, a small sketch in oils on a panel representing a woman draped and blindfolded, carrying a lighted torch. The background was somber, almost black. The movement of the woman was stately, and the effect of the torchlight on the face was sinister. So here the image is a, a blindfolded woman carrying a torch, carrying a light. Uh, it, it's a dark background. It's both uh, stately and sinister. So all of these dichotomies, all of these light and dark, black and white, uh, good and evil, uh, come in here. And that image of someone who's carrying the light but is themselves blindfolded, I think, is a central image in this book. Uh, the, the you know, And it's important that Kurtz is the one who drew this. This is his image of things. We've got a light to give, but we ourselves are blindfolded. So who's how is the light doing us any good if we can't see and we find out that uh, uh, Kurtz is the chief of the inner station and that he is on you know the fast track promotion he's going places in the company uh, he's uh, you know will someday be an assistant manager and two years from now who, who knows he may be running the whole operation uh, he seems a rising star in the in the company and look in the middle of uh, 1972 as Marlowe is talking about what he thinks of Kurtz. He says, he was just a word for me. I did not see the man in, any, in, the, in, the, name, uh, in the name any more than you do. Do you see him? Do you see the story? Do you see anything? It seems to me I am trying to tell you a dream making a vain attempt because no relation of a dream can convey the dream sensation, that commanding commingling of absurdity, surprise, and bewilderment in a tremor of struggling revolt, that notion of being captured by an in incredible which is of the very essence of dreams. So now he's, and he says, then it, then it says, he was silent for a while. And that reminds us that this is a frame narrative. So it's Marlowe talking to the people in the ships. And he comes with the ship. He says, comes back and says, no, it is impossible. It is impossible to convey the life sensation of any given epoch in one's existence. The, that which makes its truth, its meaning, its subtle and penetrating essence. It is impossible. We live as we dream alone. He paused again, as if reflecting, then added, and of course, in this, you fellows see more than I could then. You see me, whom you know. Uh, now this moment, uh, is, I think it's very significant. It's the story, he's telling us, I'm trying to tell you something that is impossible to tell you. Nobody can tell this. It's, uh, you know, we, we live alone. I'm, I'm trying to give you the picture, this image, but the communication is not finally possible. I can give you some sense of it, but it's like when you try to explain to somebody what a dream was like, and it was very real and very powerful and very intense for you, but there's never any way you can describe it that can make it that intense and real and powerful for someone else. And he's saying that that's what this story is like, and 
he's suggesting that that's what all stories are like. He's saying, you know, you couldn't see Kurtz any more than, than uh, I couldn't see Kurtz any more than you can. Of course, we as readers are also cut off from that. Kurtz is just a word, just a name for us. Uh, and he's, he's desperately, the narrator is, uh, or Marlowe as narrator is desperately trying to make this comprehensible to us. And so all of these images of absurdity that he talks about in the these stations, the, the man who is in charge of making bricks, even though there's no bricks in the anywhere around, he says he's waiting for something so he can make his bricks, or he says there was a giant hole in the ground and he had no idea what it was for. He said maybe they just make them do this to make them feel better. Um, all this stuff that he can't understand, so how can he make us understand it? Um, and again, he's talking about, uh, thematically, this is about not just Marlowe's particular struggle here, but the difficulty of understanding the world itself, how reality is kind of absurd and beyond our comprehension and doesn't make rational sense all the time. And we want it to, but it doesn't. And that's a, a very deep theme in Heart of Darkness. Now, look at the bottom of 1973. Marlowe says, I don't like work. No man does. But I like what is in the work. The chance to find yourself. Your own reality. For yourself. Not for others. What no other man can ever know. So here this is obviously related to what he was, what we were talking about earlier. That um, in, in work... You can find a reality, you're focused on that reality, and it's real for you, even if nobody else can understand it. Nobody else can know that, but it makes, it, you help to find yourself there. Uh, and this is seen as a good thing, though at the same time, he suggests that it's this, uh, this absorption in the, the, the details of their work that makes the people in the, in the colony forget the larger atrocities that they're perpetrating. They're just focused on, you know, digging the hole or, get, you know, getting the railroad made, and they're not looking at the, the moral consequences of what they do. So work, is, so many things in this book are, is presented ambiguously. Is it something that Marlowe says here that helps you be in touch with your real self? Or is it something that divorces you from reality, that keeps you from seeing what you're actually doing? And as so often in this book, it seems to be both things at once. Now, at the, near the end of section one, page um, 1975, Marlowe talks about uh, a band called, that called itself the El Dorado Exploring Expedition. Now, El Dorado, as your footnote will tell you, is a, um, a, a imaginary city that the Spanish were looking for in South America. Uh, I think that's very significant. Of course, it's a city of gold, um, and the people here are looking for, working for, and looking for money. But it's also something that's imaginary, something that you can't find. It, it's not a real place, um, and all of that is very relevant to the story that Marlowe is telling. Uh, he says, their talk was the talk of sordid buccaneers. It was reckless without hardihood, greedy without audacity, and cruel without courage. 
There was not an atom of foresight or of serious intention in the whole batch of them, and they did not seem aware of the, the, the where these things are wanted for the work of the world. To tear treasure out of the bowels of the land was their desire, with no more moral purpose at the back of it than there is in burglars breaking into a safe. Who paid the expenses of the, the noble enterprise? I don't know. But the uncle of our manager was leader of that lot. So, here again is his uh, a very clear indictment of the colonialist enterprise. He says, they're, they're, he says they're like burglars tearing treasure from the bowels of the earth. They're reckless, but without hardihood, greedy, without audacity, and cruel, without courage. So they have all of these negative qualities, but none of the positive qualities that might counterbalance them. And that's the kind of people that he's working with here. And he's very fascinated in this by, by the idea of Kurtz. He wants to meet him. He wants to see what he's like. He says, I had plenty of time for meditation, and now and then I would give some thought to Kurtz. I wasn't very interested in him, no. Still, I was curious to see whether this man who had come out equipped with moral ideas of some ideas of some sort would climb to the top after all and how he would set about his work when there so he sees you know again he's he's saying oh i'm not interested in him but you know he's obviously very interested in him and it, particularly because he seems to have some sense of morality that is lacking here some sense of principle uh, and how will that work out? Will he? Will that? How will that make him different from the other people that he sees here, who seem completely unprincipled? All right. Well, that's the end of part one. Uh, next time we'll look at uh, part two, which will be mainly the journey up the river that Marlowe is taking. Uh, a couple of things to look at. There will be some new characters that uh, he meets in this section of the book, and. One thing to think about is there, there are two groups of people on the, the steamboat as he's going up. There are the people he calls the pilgrims. Uh, those are the his fellow white colonialists. And there are people he calls the cannibals. Those are the native workers who are helping out. Think about how each of those groups is presented, how they act, what they do, what they say, how they're different and alike. Uh, and also, think about how uh, Marlowe responds to his the things that he sees, how he reflects on them, how, uh, as we've seen here, he finds this world very confusing. Uh, you'll see there's a lot of images of fog in this part of the book, and that's, uh, again, very deliberate, the idea that he is in a fog. He's having trouble seeing things. He's having trouble understanding them. Uh, so we'll talk about that and other things next time. Thanks for your attention. We'll talk about uh, The Heart of Darkness, Part 2, next time.